Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning, Sunset Hills location. It's great to be with you this morning. morning. Uh, Trust me, Brian was just sucking up because I'm going to say some bad things about him here. (laughs) It is... uh, is I always consider it a real privilege to be able to, whenever I'm given the opportunity to preach and open up God's word. And so when Brian asked me months ago, he said, hey, Rick, would you be available to preach on this particular day without hesitation? I said, yeah, that'd be great. Um, in hindsight, I wish I would have been a bit more prudent and been a little bit more patient because after that reply, he said to me, he said, great, because we're starting, there's gonna be a new series of messages at that time, and I want you to preach a sermon in that series. And the name of the series is Christians Behaving Badly. And I'm thinking, this is not going to end well. I, I, already we're off to a bad start. And so he, he begins, then he tells me, he says, listen, the, the, the series is gonna be based out of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And to say that the church in Corinth had a few issues is making a statement of, is an understatement of mammoth proportions, mammoth proportions. I mean, the church in Corinth makes even the worst churches today look like Candyland. And so I'm thinking, great, what is he going to give me to preach on? So he says, oh, by the way, your sermon is going to be out of 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to preach on divorce. And I'm thinking, you are kidding me. You are absolutely kidding me. But it gets better. He says, oh, by the way, I'm really sorry. But I'm not going to be there to hear you preach. Listen, friends don't let friends preach on divorce when they're not there. Okay, you do not do that. And I'm thinking, where did I offend you? I mean, what happened? We have a long-standing relationship. I mean, I married you and, and Rachel. I know Rachel still likes me, at least I hope so. I mean, what in the world did I do to you? Some of you may remember, probably nobody does, that the last time Brian assigned me a text to preach or a sermon to preach to the entire church, he gave me the topic of lust. Yeah, hit that one out of the park, didn't I? Yeah. I'm beginning to feel a bit like the old Life Serial commercial Mikey, you know? Give this topic to Rick. He'll preach on anything. You know, it doesn't matter. Jeez. I'm just glad he doesn't announce these things uh, publicly because nobody else would show up like Brian when it happens, so. But having said all that, it is amazing when we have the opportunity to open up the Word of God. Because when we do, we open ourselves up to a world of endless wonder, amazing discoveries, unfathomable riches, and bedrock truth, all of which the Holy Spirit will use to transform our lives into the image of His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Miracles take place when you open up the Word of God because God shows up and he begins to speak to us and he, dwell, he, he deals with us about our circumstances and about the things that we're going through and things that he wants us to know about him. My prayer for us today is 
the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18, where he says, open our eyes that we may behold the wonderful truths in your instructions. That's my prayer. Now, I wanna begin, when you, when you speak on a topic like this, <clears throat> let's start with the obvious. I would assume, and I think rightly so, that there's not a person here me included, that has not been touched in some way by divorce. Either you or someone close to you has felt the sting and the pain of divorce. And I just want you to know from the get-go, there is no condemnation in Jesus in regard to your past or in regard to my past. No condemnation. This is not a message of, you failed, now do better. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not a gospel of, do better. Hallelujah. He takes our broken lives and he makes them new. He takes our ugly, sin-filled lives and he makes us clean. He takes our sorrow and he gives us joy. He takes our loneliness and he puts us in a family. He takes our shame and he gives us dignity. And he takes our hopelessness and he gives us purpose. Listen, I cannot commend you enough to this person, Jesus. And if you don't know him, I would implore you, call out to him. He is very near, as David mentioned earlier. He is very near. And as we're gonna see here in a bit, he loves to help. He loves to tell you how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. He is amazing. He'll change your life. And not just once, but he'll do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. In fact, the Bible says his love for us is new every morning. I don't know anybody like that. He is absolutely stunning. And I cannot commend him enough to you. First things first, before we get into verse 10 through 16, which just was a wonderful scripture, wasn't it? I'm sure you're all just very excited to get into this. Uh, we need to first understand that this was a letter, as I mentioned, from Paul to the church in Corinth. It was written at a specific time in history where Paul is addressing specific issues that are going on in this church. And in order for us to glean any kind of application for our lives today, we have to, through the, through the help of the Holy Spirit, understand what Paul's original intent was because application of scripture always arises out of the author's original intent. And let me give you an example. <clears throat> our youngest son, Zachary, and his wife, Emily, live in Joplin. And they have three kids, Sophie, who's a teenager, um, Crusoe, who's five, and Monty, who's three. Some point in time last year, Monty found the keys to their minivan, got in the minivan, and started it. And I don't think it's one of the push-button starts. It actually has to have a key. How a three-year-old does that, I have no idea. So they started hiding the keys to the minivan. And in fact, one day, Monty couldn't find them, and he asked his mom, hey, mom, where's the keys to the van? And Emily said, well, we hide them now because what you did was wrong and we don't want you to do that. And he said, oh, I know, but it's my favorite bad thing to do. 
pray for Monty, please, okay? <laughs> so let's say I were to send Zach and Emily. Now, Zach and Emily sold their house recently that they lived in for about seven years, moved into a different house. So let's say I sent them an email and I said, hey, have you found a new hiding place for your keys, you know, to hide from Monty? And so then let's say 100 years from now, my great-great-grandson or whomever finds this email. And they say, oh, obviously the application is Rick doesn't think boys should drive cars. Okay? But that's not the application. Now, maybe they think that it means that to them because in their current set of circumstances, their son maybe stole the keys to their car and ran around, crashed it and did a whole bunch of stuff. And they're looking for validation as to why they don't want their son to drive the car. So this means to me that Rick doesn't want boys to drive cars. That's, that would be an incorrect application because that wasn't the intent of the email to begin with. The intent of the email is hide your keys from a three-year-old because you don't want to get them in the van and driving down the road like Fozzie Bear and Kermit the Frog on a road show to nowhere. <laughs> hide your keys. That's the intent. And so we need to make sure that we understand what Paul's is saying here about divorce, otherwise the application will be all wrong. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes. Okay, good. So one of the things we notice about Paul in this, if you were to go through chapter seven as a whole, he's constantly encouraging the Christian believers to stay in the relational status that they're currently in. So in other words, if they're married, he wants them to stay married. If they're single, he says, stay single. He says this in verse two, verse eight, verse 10, verse 11, verses 12 through 16, verses 26 through 27, verse 37, and verse 40. To say the least, he's a bit repetitive. He's making a point. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. That's what he's saying. He said, okay, why does he say this? What's going on in the church that necessitates this kind of repetition? Well, obviously there had been some considerable pressure within the church to either dissolve marriage or to abstain from marriage. And we see where this comes from if we look at chapter seven, verse one. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with women. Now what happened is that Paul, at some point in time in their correspondence, he had, there was communication going back and forth. And so he had said to them, which he does in this letter in 1 Corinthians, flee immorality. But there were some in the church who took flee immorality and they took it to the extreme to where abstain from intimacy, period, even within marriage. So, and this is what Brian was, he's mentioned this throughout our sermon series, is there's a variety of ways, there's two ways that we tend to respond to the word of God. We can get into two ditches, not that we tend to respond that way, but we can get into two ditches. One is license, where we say, oh, God's just, you know, he's a God of grace, he loves us, boys will be boys, it's okay. And so it's basically a license to sin. We presume upon the grace of God. That would be a huge mistake. The other one is get into legalism, which is what they're doing here. So they took flea immorality and they turned it into no intimacy, even in marriage. And we look at this and we say, how does something like that happen? Well, it, it actually can happen all the time. Now you've heard me say, uh, I believe I've said this before here, that I have this habit when I read the Bible. 
I put myself into the story. I love doing that. I'm, I've got this wild imagination. So I want you to play along with me here. We're Corinth, okay? We're Corinth. And your spouse comes to you, those of you who are married, and says this. Honey, I've decided that moving forward, all intimacy is off limits because Pastor Brian said we need to flee immorality. Now, what is going through your brain? Here's what I'd be asking. Define forward. Because you said moving forward, define forward. Because the answer to that question determines whether we stay in this church or not. (laughs) Now, it may sound crazy, but what is happening in Corinth happens, unfortunately, all the time. We take a truth from scripture and we add to it our own interpretation, our own agenda, which unfortunately sometimes, let's be honest, in a political year can have political overtones. And we can add our own circumstances to it. And what comes out of it is something that is an application that was never intended in the first place. And then we declare to the world, God said. Well, God may have said that, but that's not what it means. He may have said, flee immorality, but he didn't mean no intimacy in marriage. And all the men said, hallelujah, okay? That's not what he meant. So this problem was so bad. Now think about this. This just, I, this just blows my mind. It's so bad, so strong, that people were actually getting a divorce in order to not violate their own conscience. They were getting a divorce, not to violate their own God. And they thought they were doing it all for the glory of God. Now, I think it's assumed, it's safe to assume that this just wasn't just happening with one or two couples in the church because Paul wouldn't have felt any uh, reason to address this issue in an open public letter to the church. So this was a fairly uh, significant issue within the church. Now that we have a clear picture of the problem, let's read once again what Paul's response is. He says in verse, starting in verse 10 of chapter seven, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, if in your mind you think, and we're gonna talk about this here in a little bit, okay, is there a reason for divorce? If there ever was a reason, this could be one. could be, according to some people as they're thinking. That's what they were thinking at the time. And Paul's saying, no, 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 stay married, stay married. We're gonna look at this. He says, but if she does or already has, that's in this this verb doesn't mean if she does leave or if she does get a divorce, it means if she already has. She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. So, In light of all that's going on in the church, Paul says, stay married, stay married, be reconciled. He just says that word, be reconciled. And I'm sure, I mean, if once again, I'm there in Corinth, I'm thinking, hey, Paul, let me ask you a question. I've got a question here. Are you married? Oh, you're not married. Mm, Okay, hmm. Why should I be taking advice from you about marriage? Because personally, I don't like the situation I'm in. 
And it would be easy just to write a certificate of divorce because you could do that in those days, especially as a man, and just be done with it. Just go on to someone else who does agree with your position. So why does Paul say, be reconciled, stay married? Why does he do that? Well, he knows that it was God who created marriage and therefore God knows what's best. And Brian's talked about this throughout this series. God's the creator. As the creator, he knows how we're wired. He wired us. So he knows what's best for us. And so we need to trust the issue is, do we trust God? Do we trust God or are we just gonna trust ourselves? No, I think I know what's best. And no, well, he doesn't understand my situation. But praise God, he doesn't just say, work it out. This is what I want, work it out. No, he gives us his Holy Spirit. Now think about this. He puts himself inside of us. What a gift. He leads us, he guides us, he speaks to us, he tells us, he helps us, he encourages us, he reminds us of how much he loves us over and over and over again. I can't tell you the number of times the Holy Spirit has spoke to me in the course of my marriage. Now I say spoke, I've never heard his voice audibly, but I get impressions and I know they're from God because so many times God has said in the midst of something, don't say that, Rick Hine, do not say that. Don't you say that. <laughs> I know that that's God. <laughs> and there's other times he said, look, you know you're wrong. She knows you're wrong. I know you're wrong. So go apologize. I'll help you with it. And every time I follow those, that voice, it ends up being for my best and for Gail's best. And you know what? It's for her joy. Amazing. God actually knows what he's talking about. What a deal. So that's why Paul says stay married because he knows there's more at stake here than just me and my wife. Marriage is never about a man and a woman. It's about a man and a woman and Jesus. It's about all, and it takes all three to make a marriage the way God intended it for it to be. We're a reflection to the world, folks, of God. We're a reflection of God. We're gonna see that here in just a minute. The other reason Paul tells them to not divorce is because, and instead to seek reconciliation, is because he knows that God is a God of reconciliation. And our marriage is to reflect that to a lost world. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, Paul says this, and this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Have you, you know, think about this. God's saying, hey, I want you to join me. You've been asked by uh, maybe a company or something, they wanted your employment. And you know, maybe it was a, you know, they pay extremely well or something. You think, wow, I'm really honored. Listen, nothing's better than this. God, the God says, join me. What could be better than that? And so he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's so important. You wanna be reconciled? Don't keep score. You start keeping score in terms of trespasses, you will not win. You will lose. 
and your mate will lose and your marriage will lose. And a world will lose a reflection of what reconciliation really is. He goes on to say, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Is it any wonder that the church in America, according to so many people, is a joke? Because we proclaim of God a reconciliation, but we won't even, we're not even willing to reconcile with our mate. Let's just get a divorce. Let's start over. I got a better shot with somebody else. And yet we proclaim that God's a God of reconciliation. John Hosier, former pastor in the UK, says this about our current culture. He says, every one of us is affected in some way by divorce. We live in a divorce culture where many of our expectations about all kinds of relationships are shaped by our experience of divorce. Living in a divorce culture conditions us to be skeptical about the motives of others. It makes us suspicious of commitment and it means we expect to be let down. It shapes us to always prefer to keep our options open. And isn't that true? Let me give you an example. There's a professor at Harvard University named Dan Gilbert. He has the title, the doctor of happiness. He measures how, uh, what makes people happy. So he and another professor started this class and they identified it as a photography class. So students enrolled. What it was, it ended up, it's, it was a social experiment and they didn't know this. So they teach them photography, how to take black and white pictures in the first month or so of the, of the course. After a month, he said, go out on campus, take pictures, <clears throat> and bring back your two favorite photographs. He said, okay, when they did, he said, we're going to make these into uh, posters. And he said, now we're going to divide the class into two groups. Group A, you're going to give me one of your posters, and you keep the other. If you want to trade at any point in time, because you don't like the one you have, just let us know, we'll trade. And if you want to trade again, we'll trade again. Group B you give me the poster you don't want and you're never gonna see it again. You just get one poster and that's it. And he asked them before they divided in groups, which group would you wanna be a part of? Everybody said group A. Everybody said group A. I'm gonna keep our options open. I may not like the poster I get. Now, I don't know how he did this, but he measured the happiness of the people in both groups. And his conclusion was that the people in group B were the happiest. And look what he says here about his results. He said, my then girlfriend and I had been living together for about a decade. And once we saw the results of this experiment and a friend of mine, Dave Myers, called and said, you know, I think this really explains the difference between living together and getting married. And guess what? <clears throat> he said, which had never occurred to me. So yeah, I went home and proposed. And guess what? I was utterly right. I love her so much more now that we're married. She's the love of my life. And I didn't realize that when I was always thinking, should I stay or shouldn't I stay? Isn't that amazing? Maybe God knows what he's talking about. And I have no reason to believe Dan Gilbert's a person of faith. Years ago, young, or was it, uh, One Republic, excuse me, 
Years ago, One Republic had a song. Don't worry, I'm not gonna sing it for you. It's called Love Runs Out. You know that song? It's a great song. Horrible theology, but good song. And the chorus goes something like this. We'll start a fire and we'll shut it down when the love runs out. Newsflash. Your love's always gonna run out. (laughs) My love runs out. Gail's love runs out. Your love runs out. There's only one person whose love doesn't run out. It's Jesus. And we need to cling to him so he can fill us with his love so we know how to love, so we know how to forgive, so we know how not to keep score, so we know how we can be reconciled with with each other. It's not just some trifle thing to say, let's trust God. That's life-changing. And trust me, I know if you're in a marriage that's difficult, I know what it's like. For the first eight years of my marriage, I was the proverbial husband without a clue. And my wife, she said she would have taken her life if she could have figured out a way, but we had two boys at the time. So I know what problems are like. But God, by his grace and mercy, got us through and continues to get us through each and every day. Now, it's at this point we need to address the elephant in the room because the elephant is asking the question, are there any biblical reasons to get a divorce? And the simple answer is yes, there are. They are few, but they do exist. Now, I want to encourage you that if you're asking that question, if you're looking for a biblical reason to divorce, it could be that you're asking the wrong question. Because you could be wanting God to rubber stamp a decision you've already made. And you're on a path, a particular path, and you want God to follow you on that path. And listen, that's the antithesis of the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith says, God's on a path and we're following him. We're following him. Now you may say, yeah, but Rick, you don't get it. This marriage is killing me. So you're just saying, I'm just supposed to stay married and be miserable? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. Look in verse Psalm 119. I love these verses. I've been, this year, I've been uh, doing something different for my morning reading. I've been taking Psalm 119 and uh, uh, taking a verse and I meditate on it for two days. I get out my journal. I'm not a journaling guy. I I don't journal very well. But uh, well, like I said, I've got a wild imagination, so it helps. So I get out my journal. I look at a verse for two days. I just go over that verse and just think about it, pray about it, write down all my observations. And God's amazing, doing amazing things, just speaking to me about the truth. And look at this, Psalm 119, verse one through three says, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. And then he says this in verse three, they will not compromise. Now, when I think of the word compromise, I think of the word negotiate, okay? Because when you compromise, you negotiate. Hey, let's give and take here. And that's what the devil did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. He negotiated with her. Well, did God really say this? And the... So the psalmist says, they will not compromise. They will not negotiate with evil. And they walk only in his, pa- in his paths. Now, why is it they don't negotiate with evil? 
because they know that if they do, they'll get off the path of God and that's where the greatest joy is. Why would you sacrifice your joy by compromising with evil? That doesn't make any sense. I love to be joyful, not just because I'm a seven on the Enneagram scale. That's just who I am. I mean, we all seek for our joy. (coughs) Excuse me. And I used to think years ago that here, the Christian faith was this. You've got God over here. And it's like, I give up what I really wanna do and sacrifice this so that I can follow Jesus. That's not even close. We give up everything for Jesus so that we can find our greatest joy in Him. The two are not mutually exclusive. They're the same thing. So when Jesus says, when God says, be reconciled, He knows that that's for our good. Now, let me just say, I know reconciliation is not easy. It's the hard path. I was at a Christmas party this last year and someone asked me, do you and Gail still fight? I looked at this person like they had four eyeballs in their foreheads. I what? Do we still fight? We've been married 40 years. We got that down. Of course we fight. For us, reconciliation, fighting is a part of the reconciliation process. It's reconciliation in action because if you're going to reconcile, you have to understand each other. And for us, and when I say us, that's code for me, for us, reconciliation or understanding each other ain't easy. And it's not easy because I'm so stinking selfish. The selfishness part, I got that down. The understanding part, huh, not so much. Still working on that. But by God's grace, He's helping me. He's helping me. And that's part of the sanctifying work in marriage. I, I, I know, I can't imagine what God thinks. You know, I pray, God, I wish I was different. Make me different, change me, change me, change me. And I'm sure God's saying, I sent you a wife, didn't I? <laughs> Be reconciled. I'm for you, I wanna help you. Let me help you, let me give you joy. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. Let me conclude with this. I don't know what your past relationships have been like. Like Brian said, I do love you, but I really don't care. (laughs) We don't need to get into all that. God knows, but I do know this. I do know this. He loves you. And He longs to pour out His joy on you and His goodness. Let me tell you this little story. Let's say you were studying to be a doctor, a medical doctor. So you could get your degree, go over to some nation that has inadequate healthcare and serve them. So you're you're training, you're going through all this, you're spending all your money and and you finally get it. You get your, your, your medical degree, you go overseas, you start to serve people in a nation that has no medical care, very inadequate medical care. And you see people all around you who are sick and they say, no, 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 I don't need, I'm fine, I'm fine. No, thank you. It goes on for months. No one wants you to serve them. Finally, someone says, will you please help me? What's your response? Well, it's about time. How in the world did you get in this shape? You need to start taking better care of yourself. 
You don't do that. You say, finally, I get to do what I long to do. I've been looking forward to this my whole life. I've been training for this. I've been longing to be good to you, to love you, to help you, to serve you. Listen, the Bible says that when we die and breathe our last and we get to heaven, Jesus will serve us. He loves you more than you could ever think or imagine. I don't know what your situation is in your marriage, but listen, God wants to help you. If you need to get some help, get some help. Talk to some people who've been married longer than you. They don't have all the answers, but they will point you to Jesus who does. He's a wonderful God and he longs for us to know how much he loves us. Amen, let's stand.